Welcome to Inside Public <laughs> with Alex Guttentag, Leighton Woodhouse, Mike Schellenberger. Welcome, listeners. This is our irregular chit chat around what is going on at Public and where our heads are at and what we've got planned. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah, I think so. Okay, yeah. yeah. Let's Very get into professional. it. Professional. Yeah. So it is. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, it is uh, January twelfth. This will probably air January thirteenth. Big event is Iowa caucuses, Monday, January 14th? No, 15th. 15th. Right. Looks like it'll be a big Trump victory. That's what mm-hmm. everybody, that's what all the polls say, right? And so yes. the, the real question is whether or not who comes in second. Right. And if it's not DeSantis, then it will be a, I don't know, it, I'm not going to predict that he'll drop out, but if it's not DeSantis, then his campaign is is probably doomed it's over so DeSantis has to come in two or he's out and then it turns into a two-way race between Trump and Haley I Nikki guess Haley, yeah there's I mean, no right sense now, in which Vivek will no I place. think right now it's a contest between DeSantis and Nikki Haley for second place uh, and Nikki Haley is investing much more in New Hampshire and South Carolina South Carolina being her home state so she's you know she's got a she's got a nice kind of forward path DeSantis kind of has all his chips on Iowa but it's still she's still kind of um you know wishing for a dream here right I mean or what was it kind of <laughs> I mean there's no scenario in which she wins is there I well mean, I mean they, they all are aren't they they're I yeah. mean, everybody who's who's competing who's against Trump is yeah. kind of competing either for perhaps VP pick but more likely just that something is going to happen to keep Trump off the ballot you know the Democrat if the Democrats keep Trump off the ballot then they're the leading contenders the right. irony is funny. It's funny because the irony is that Trump has a lot more legitimacy among Republican voters than Biden has among Democrat voters. But yes. Trump's got all these competitors and Biden has none because it's just a function of party politics, but it's also a function of Biden keeping Democrats successfully keeping Democrats off the ballot. Right. Right. Yeah. So this but, is I mean, all incumbents do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's an interesting moment. We were, we're, we're we've been chit chatting about a piece that we want to do on legitimacy and how the idea has been that Trump has no legitimacy. He violates norms. He tried to steal the elections. He's a kind of rogue element. He's a fringe element, and yet here he is, you know, basically in all the polls showing that he would, if elections were held tomorrow, he would defeat Joe Biden. He would win the electoral college. I don't know if he'd have a majority of the popular vote maybe, but would win the Electoral College. By contrast, the news media, according to the latest Pew polls, had only 33% of the public say they trust. I believe like public trust in Congress is very low. I think it's right. well below 50%. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, probably the same with the Supreme Court. It's like almost as low as the media's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have this very strange situation where the person that has the most legitimacy in the society is Donald Trump. The person that the whole establishment has said and that creates a very interesting dynamic where the establishment basically discredits itself and delegitimizes itself the more it insists that trump is illegitimate there's actually can the public doesn't the public says no now of course you as you point out that's the other dynamic here is that the establishment is so unified against trump i mean i just went to the new york times a rare visit by me to the new york times webpage, and it was just all anti-trump i mean it was just you know, complete mm-hmm. hegemonic anti-Trumpism. So it's a it's a fascinating moment in American society where the establishment is so deeply delegitimized. I can't think of another period in American history like this. You look back at Watergate, really it was Nixon and the Republicans 
I guess, or really Nixon who was delegitimated, but really the Washington Post, the New York Times were viewed as very legitimate institutions. So if you kind of go, this is a moment like you have every 50 years or something, a cycle, it's really unlike that because actually in the early 70s, you actually had, you know, you had the Washington Post, New York Times, the Pentagon Papers, you had the the, the heroism of journalists and in, in discovering Watergate, and then you had the church committee hearings, which sort of went and, you know, restored congressional leadership. Nothing like that exists today. It's quite the opposite. You basically have one person with majority or a very slight majority legitimacy and all of the other governing institutions um, with very low levels of legitimacy. Yeah. Well, it's like an emperor wears, wears new clothes kind of moment. Like they did everything they could to stop him in 2016 and he prevailed. So then, you know, they turned to the Russian collusion thing as sort of their explanation for why they're, they were completely re rejected by the electorate. If it happens again, then it's like, okay, it really is at the co like the cost of the political establishment's legitimacy. If they've done everything they can to stop this guy, they've called him an illegitimate president, and then the voters again, after he served a four-year term and then been defeated, then vote vote him back into office, it's a completely discrediting From prison. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then they've completely lost control. Yeah. 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 The judiciary, too. And it's even worse than that. If you consider that on Trump's most signature issues, starting with the border wall and the border crisis, but then also you would say trade, the Democrats are being forced to basically adopt his positions. I mean, you have the Democratic governors, sorry, the Democratic mayors of of New York and Chicago, Chicago in particular, a very progressive mayor saying, we can't absorb all these migrants coming to the United States. You have... You know, I think a growing sense, in, I mean, among ordinary Americans, well, you're very pro-immigration lately, we were talking mm -hmm. about before, and you being like, yeah, the situation's out of control. Yeah. Like, how do you look at that and be like, this is, you know, using cardboard to climb under barbed wire and a lot of reports of child trafficking, mm -hmm. sex trafficking, it's just a bad situation. So it's not just that, um, it's not just that, like, Trump has more legitimacy than the governing institutions. It's also that the things that he ran on have and we have even added Ukraine or or you know or or Afghanistan, but even on foreign policy, really has it, it really does have a lot of legitimacy right now. This nationalist policy agenda, in many ways, is is I think Democrats that's where they've been moving. I mean, I would I would want to give Biden some credit for there's been a break in the consensus around neoliberalism and free market fundamentalism, and that has affected both parties. And I think that's been the case since the financial meltdown um you know the the great recession destroyed the washington consensus around free markets and both parties have i mean it's been neither party embraces that ideology anymore um and so trump is obviously the loudest rejection of it but i think biden probably the democrats probably would have been there even without him so i don't know that it's fair to say that they're that they've adopted his agenda Responded i think it's just been him. a totally discredited ideology Biden has done some, this is, the, you know, I just wrote about Rui Tushera and uh, John Judas's book and uh, in their chapter about Biden, you know, they give him due credit. Lee Fong also brings this up quite a bit about some of the legislation that he's passed that he does not get much credit for, like the CHIPS Act, the Chips and Science Act, um, the you know, bringing um, uh, microprocessor manufacturing back to the United States, the Infrastructure Act, you know, he's extremely pro-union. Um, this is stuff that is different is markedly different from the last like 30 years 
40 years of Democratic presidents. Yeah, it'd be fair though. The Chips Act, the Chips Act was very bipartisan, I think. Right? Yeah. I mean, well, that's I another know. credit to him, right? I guess so. Although the difference is that the Democrats were against Trump's border wall. Right. So you have on one of them. So like the chips, I think the Chips Act doesn't delegitimize the Republicans in the same way that the border crisis delegitimizes the Democrats. No, no, I'm not saying that the the, the Chips Act delegitimizes yeah. the Republicans at all. I'm just all I'm saying is that, you know, Biden should get we should give Biden credit for the for his championing sort of a different agenda. This just as we give Trump credit for yeah. having rejected the the and Washington then it really there was an internal dynamic within the Democratic Party against neoliberalism right that that explains and just that. in the country yeah yeah I agree with that yeah. well do you want to get to your you did a piece today with Zed uh, by the way we yeah. uh, it's there's there's actually four of us now at public it's uh, the three of us plus Zed Jelani mm -hmm. the three of us live in the Bay Area Zed is in Georgia that's the only so. reason why we. Uh, um, why he's he's not on the podcast here. right now? Yeah, he's in here in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Zed Jelani, uh, who we probably have yet to properly, I guess we did a couple sentences about him at the end of one of the articles. Properly introduced him. You know, we said when we started public, uh, now a year and a month ago, that uh, we were going to be pretty focused on the work and we weren't going to be very talky about ourselves. But um, yeah, we did hire Zed Jelani, mm -hmm. who's a really talented journalist, and I think has. Is a writes a lot more about politics than we do, which maybe it sounds surprising to our readers. But I mean, writes about electoral politics right. more than we do. But uh, yeah, Leighton, you guys did a piece today. What was uh, tell us what you were saying in there? So, um, Ray uh, Ray Tishera is sort of a, a friend of public, um, and um, so he and John Judas. And you should explain who he is. Yeah, so he and John Judas. He's he 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 has been sort of a, I guess a analyst and an intellectual on the Democratic side um, for decades. And he and John Judas wrote a book um, in 20 years ago. I, I don't remember the year that it was published, but a book. That 2002 made, or something. Is it 2002? Yeah. Big impact on on the, the, the sort of the Democratic Party um, called The Emerging Democratic Majority. And it was somewhat of a triumphalist book. I mean, it was based on data. It was, it was carefully written, but it was basically anticipating that there was going to be a realignment that there was a realignment forming um, in which um, the Democratic coalition would be composed of, sort of professional class people in big cities and uh, women and uh, racial minorities. And that they were going to command, and because these demographics were growing, they were going to command an enduring majority for the Democratic Party. Um, so they got half of that story right because that was really the Obama coalition um, and the part that they got wrong, or just the part that may, perhaps you could say the Democrats squandered their 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 opportunity to prove him right, um, was that it was not an enduring coalition at all. It fell apart um, with uh, with Trump's election, and now we're kind of seesawing between parties rather than having any party have an enduring uh, majority. And the reason why is because you know the Democrats have have sort of betrayed the working class and have been betraying the working class since probably the 1970s uh, when they started to, you know, I think that this has to do with the, the sort of the backstory is that we came out of the post-war years when the United States dominated the world economy because Europe was, uh, was uh, you know, in ruins and Japan was in ruins. 
and those were mark big markets for uh, American imports um, to reconstruct those 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 um, societies, and um, and so we just dominated everything, and in that and so part of our pros- our prosperity meant um, a huge middle class, a strong, thriving working class, um, powerful unions, um, and uh, and it was and so this is the moment that I think a lot people on the right and the left kind of. Um, pine for we have a lot of nostalgia for that time of american history but it was never going to last because eventually europe and japan came back into became global competitors again and then all the post-colonial countries um started to develop and and um there were cheaper labor sources for um, for um for western industries and so that sort of um hyper charged um competitive marketplace meant that the United States, the, it just allow it, it meant that the United States couldn't um, sort of sustain this European style welfare state anymore. Um, employers started going after unions because they were costing too much and making them uncompetitive globally. They started offshoring jobs because they were, there was this new competition that they were facing. Um, and it decimated the labor movement, which was sort of the get out the vote operation. Um, for the Democratic Party and the labor movement had traditionally been what kept the Democrats very much rooted in a in a working class constituency. So with the demise of the labor movement, um, the Democrats started to gravitate towards sort of pro- professional class people in the cities and started to cater more to corporate interests into Wall Street beginning in the 1970s. And this is sort of when Carter embraced and, you know, he's facing this inflation crisis and he, embra- he appointed Paul Volcker to the Fed and he embraced um, sort of aus- budget austerity um, philosophies, these kind of things that were traditionally more Republican. And then in the 90s, when Bill Clinton was elected, you know, the Democrats had been out of power for 12 years at that point and, uh, and they were flailing for a new approach that would give them back the White House. And they found it in essentially forging what, Teixeira and, and Judas had, had anticipated this, this kind of new coalition um, and uh, and uh, gave up essentially on the white working class, at least at the time, it was really the white working class and the industrial states, states that had jettisoned the Democratic Party. Um, and, you know, f- fast forward to Obama. Obama won twice by running as a populist and he was able to, to win because he he appealed to that white working class base while appealing also to racial minorities, women, and um, professional class people in the cities. And so by really, but he he campaigned to the uh, white workers in those industrial states. He brought them into the coalition and he won twice. Um, Hillary Clinton comes around. She's got no ability or interest to appeal to that to that group of people. I mean, Obama governed, he betrayed that the white working class or the working class period. Um, when, um, as, as in, when he was, got, you know, in office, but he still campaigned with this, these, these, uh, with this populist message. And he, and, and she actually called them deplorables. Right. I mean, she was basically, I mean, it was of course a reference to Trump voters, but she, there was a more, to the, if, if Obama thought he was better than those people, he hid it a lot better than yes. he really did. Yeah. She specifically ran a campaign that was appealing to the identity um, politics of the people who had contempt for precisely those Americans. So she was, it wasn't just that she was, you know, uh, writing them off as racist and misogynists, but she was championing, you know, the, the, the um, sort of the, the identity constituencies of the big metropolitan areas. So she kind of really polarized along this divide that was, that already existed in the United States. Um, and, 
So, you know, we'd been talking about the white working class. That was a big deal when Bernie Sanders ran and there was all this, you know, discourse about the white working class. Um, and there was a counter discourse saying like, like it's racist to be just concerned about the white working class. Why is it always about the white working class? But the thing is that, so since then, what's happened, and this is something that Rui has documented very closely looking at polling data, um, is that uh, it's not just the white working class anymore that have been abandoning the Democratic Party. Latino working class, non-ed college educated people have been abandoning the Democrats in droves. You know, the, like basically the entire uh, Rio Grande Valley voted for, for, for Trump um, in 2020. Um, and uh, and they and more Latinos voted for Trump in 2020 than 2016 by a big margin, e- even after four years of his anti-immigrant um, uh, sort of um, hysteria. Um, and Asian voters have been um, the Democrats have been losing Asian voters in smaller margins than Latinos, but you know alarming margins. And even Black Democrats have been on a downward trajectory in a much smaller basis, but nevertheless. The margins are very thin for the Democrats because the white working class constitutes so much of the electorate that they really have to drive up huge leads in all these other con- these other categories to be able to overcome the Republicans' essentially lock on white workers, and they're failing to do that. Um, so this is a strategy that's leading to electoral doom for the Democrats. And you know, uh, you know, I think it, you know all praise to Rui for basically. Uh, staying close to the data and coming mm-hmm. to this conclusion. I mean, in some ways, the pressure was on him because he had had this count, this other hypothesis that was clearly no longer explaining reality. But I still remember right after Trump got elected, it was like, must have been like December 2016. I remember listening to like this long, like NPR, you know, special report about how Trump had basically um, decided that he was not going, to, that he was going to, you know, run as a Republican and run as a nationalist and as a populist. And uh, just how crazy that was because Latinos were the future and everybody knew that Latinos were going to, you know, were people of color and they were going to vote Democrat. Right. And that the election was just a kind of fluke. This was after the election, you know, (laughs) like so they had like lost and like the liberal media is like, well, obviously this can't work, you know. And I mean, he to be fair, he had not won the popular vote, you know, and it was a. and Hillary was dislikable, and they were sort of bringing that all, all out. But it was so striking how people thought this was just the craziest thing in the world that, that Trump would run on an anti-immigrant agenda when everybody, every good-thinking Republican up until then, knew that they had to have a softer view of immigration, a less, you know, a more pro-immigrant view in order to get Latinos. Trump said, no, that's not the case. And, and to see him back up now, you know, I think does, I mean, the Ruby book is showing up at this particular moment, right? We're about to have Trump's about to, you know, he's ahead in all the polls, he's going to be, you know, the polls show him beating Biden. But it, it, it shows that, that really there was, it wasn't a aberration, that there was something underneath the, sur- the surface that Trump and Bannon and all of his advisors had really seen. I mean, I have, you have to kind of give them credit for the vision of, these guys to buck not just the Democrats, but all of the strategists in their own party, the top pollsters. I mean, Frank Luntz and all these other guys that have been telling them to be more pro-immigrant in, to, in order to get the Latinos. They just rejected all of it. Yeah. And they and they were, you know, kind of, uh, on the one hand, they were basically framed as fascists, um, but they were also sort of framed as clowns. I remember like that early coverage of Bannon was that he was kind of an idiot, you know, he's a slob. Mm-hmm. 
but they were really i mean bannon was ahead of Rui. Mm-hmm. you know Rui is you know steve bannon was ahead of Rui teixeira they were they were they were they saw something in the deep tectonic kind of substructure of the american electorate and the demographics and the and the ideology because of course like we kind of go Latinos voted for Trump even though he's anti-immigrant. Well, a lot of the Latinos vote for Trump because he's anti-immigration. And right. They're like competing yeah. at a class perspective. They're competing for scarce jobs, and they don't want more unskilled labor. So I think it's a really interesting – I mean, the de- I mean, if the theme of this podcast is legitimacy <laughs> and delegitimization, um, it's amazing how, how, how basically every single elite institution, including the Republican Party – Including its pollsters, all have de- you know are all de- lost legitimacy in the face of this insight by the nationalist populace on the right that there was the making of a of an electoral majority, not just a single electoral victory, but of a potentially lasting electoral majority. But do you think they had that? They knew that that they definitely had that insight, or were they stubborn and lucky? That's I, a good question. I don't know. I I think that it's less that the. Republican nationalist Republicans have that insight and it's more the shortcoming of the sort of liberal democratic outlook because Democrats had been so you know as you mentioned before I'm very pro immigration so I on a policy level um, I favor a lot of what the Democrats call for although as you also mentioned you know things are getting totally out of control and I recognize that Um, but the but on a political level you know the Democrats we're seeing the world and seeing voters in these racial categories and they did this kind of racial essentializing analysis where they were like okay if you are latino if you have a spanish surname then you care about immigration if we speak like positively about immigration we're going to get your vote and if you're black what you care about is criminal justice this stuff is like quite racist really these assumptions and as it turns out so the two things first of all Surprise, surprise, black voters actually care about public safety, not just, um, you know, uh, progressive criminal justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Lati- a lot of Latino voters, especially the ones who live on the border, care a great deal about um, about illegal immigration and are opposed to it. But then the second part of it is that also those voters just care about other things, too. Right. Like you're like if you're a black voter, you're a Latino voter, you're an Asian voter, you're going to care about things like jobs and like uh, and, you know, education and all these other issues that are just left off the table. And they a lot. So, you know, the, the I think the the shortcoming of this analysis when we were talking about the white working class leaving the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party automatically jumped to, oh, that's because they're racist. Well, actually, the white working class was just happened to be um, the first part of the working class. Now we're seeing it's just a whole working class thing. It's just the whole working class is leaving leaving the Democrats. The white ones just happen to be out front for whatever reason. But the, but since Democrats see everything based on race, they were like, oh, it's the uneducated, ignorant, racist white people. Yeah. We're leaving good riddance. We've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.